Our Lord, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That through faith in him and because of what he has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, that we can come confidently into your presence. Lord, what a privilege that is. But we also know that with that privilege comes a responsibility of representing you to the world around us. So Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you will give us a greater understanding and a greater appreciation and a greater joy in the story of redemption and in what you have accomplished through Jesus. And help us, Lord, to take these things and to apply them so that we will grow as your ambassadors to the world around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I shared that many Christians treat the Old Testament like they treat the IRS tax code. Now, the IRS tax code, we know that it's important, at least in theory, but it's so intimidating that we aren't really sure if we personally want to dig into it, so we would prefer to leave it to the professionals. And this is the way that many Christians treat the Old Testament. On top of this, it's common to think, oh, the Old Testament's kind of outdated. It's kind of irrelevant. I mean, it's old. It's in the name of it. And, and on top of that, we're Jesus people, aren't we? I mean, we're about God's grace, not about the law. But here's the thing. Look at it from this perspective. The Old Testament is basically as irrelevant as the foundation is to a house. I mean, look at this picture of this house up here. Um, its foundation is not helping it out very much. This house is sinking. And it shows how essential a solid foundation is to a house. Because if a house doesn't have a solid foundation, it could sink. It's going to begin to crack. It's going to begin to crumble. This is why a foundation is so essential. And as Christians, we focus in on what Jesus accomplished to overcome sin and evil and death. It's something we celebrate. Even we just finished singing songs to celebrate what Jesus accomplished. But everything that Jesus did in his ministry through his life, death, and resurrection, it's built off the foundation of what took place before him in the Old Testament. We need to understand God's big story if we really want a strong foundation to understand what Jesus accomplished, if we want a strong foundation for our faith. And one of the cool things is that as we understand God's big story of redemption, that does center on Jesus, but, but it has so much more as well, it'll help us to stand more in awe of everything that he has done. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 19. We are in a series right now called Finding Our Place in History. And it's also known as Finding Our Place in His Story. Because the Bible is not a collection of disconnected parts. Instead, it's one cohesive storyline. And we are tracing that storyline from Genesis to Revelation to help us to understand God's story as well as our place in what He is doing. And if you are following along through the series in the Jesus Storybook Bible, I would encourage you sometime between now and next Sunday to read pages 70 through 107. This is a great follow-up to today's message. And I want to just remind us of where we've been the last few weeks. We've been talking about how the Bible um, is one main storyline, but it has four main scenes within it. The scenes are the creation, and then the fall, redemption, and restoration. You see, God created the world to be good, to be a place of thriving. He created humans with dignity and with purpose as his representatives and as men and women who were to care for his creation. But then Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. And now in our world, every, every bit of pain, every 
piece of suffering, all the brokenness in our world can be traced back to that first sin so many years ago. But God was gracious, and he began to implement a plan for redeeming us, a plan of redemption that was launched, as we saw last week, through his promises to a man named Abraham, a promise to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation that that would then be a blessing for the whole earth. And today we're going to move on forward in this story uh, to see how the storyline continues to unfold, uh, specifically in the formation of God's people. God's people. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are frequently called the patriarchs of Israel. Abraham, as we saw last week, gave birth, or he didn't give birth, his wife Sarah gave birth. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. God gave Jacob another name, Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons who became, their descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. If you were to read the latter half of the book of Genesis, you would see how these tribes are beginning to take shape, how God is forming his people. But it's a very messy process. It's a messy process full of messy people. Let me give you one example. If you want to read something interesting that will keep your attention, read Genesis chapter 30. Because that is the account of the conception and birth of all of Jacob's children. It it reads like a soap opera. Because there are four different women who are giving birth to Jacob's children. There's a lot of rivalry and jealousy between them. They're even bargaining with each other. Hey, who gets to sleep with Jacob tonight? It's a mess. But it's through this messy situation that God is accomplishing His plan of redemption. And I think this can give us a lot of hope because there's not one of us who doesn't have some degree of messiness in our lives, who doesn't at times make bad decisions. But thankfully, God still will redeem us even through or even because of the messiness. And so God is working to build his people. As we get to the final chapters of the book of Genesis, we see that Jacob's family moves down to Egypt to escape a famine. Now, through a crazy series of circumstances, one of Jacob's sons named Joseph is already in Egypt. They didn't know it at the time, but he was already in Egypt as actually the second in command over the entire Egyptian nation, second only to Pharaoh himself. And so Jacob's family, as they move to Egypt, they are treated like royalty for a little while. And then when another Pharaoh comes to power, Jacob is forgotten, and then the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. For 400 years. And as you look at this, you put yourself in the, in the shoes of the people who are enslaved there. It would be so easy to think, oh, man, God made those promises way back to our father Abraham, but, but the promise is already failing. God's already abandoned us. But in fact, he had not, because this was actually all part of God's plan. For back in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, I mean, so this is centuries before they went down into Egypt in the first place. God told Abraham, Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. God told him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So this is all part of God's plan for redemption. His promises had not failed one bit. The Israelites, they're enslaved there. They didn't like that, which who would like that? So they begin to cry out to God. And he then puts into motion the next step 
and his plan of redemption to free them from captivity. He meets Moses in a burning bush and calls Moses to be his leader for deliverance. It's on Mount Sinai, which will come back later. God commissions Moses to go and be the human vessel, the human leader for delivering the people out of captivity in Egypt. Moses is reluctant at first, but then he goes. Moses gets to work applying this process of redemption, but God doesn't just sit on the sidelines at that point. He then sends 10 plagues upon Egypt to demonstrate his superiority over Egypt's so-called gods. And it's a way to try to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. Now, after each of the first nine plagues, Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let the Israelites go. They're helping us out a lot here. They're our slaves. So God institutes the tenth and final plague, the worst of all, that in one dreadful night, God will strike down the firstborn of every family in Egypt. A terrible, dreadful plague. Now, the Israelites deserved to have their firstborn struck down as well because they too were sinful. But God opened up a way for them to avoid that. And what they were called to do is take a lamb. Each, each family takes a lamb, kills that lamb, and takes the blood and puts it on the doorposts, the doorframe of their house. We see a, um, a, a description of this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. God says that when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So this became known as the Passover. When because of this blood that was on the doorframe of the houses, God was willing to pass over the houses of the Israelites in his judgment. It was the Passover. And this Passover is raising a very important principle that God saves by substitution. Salvation, in the way God has set up the process of redemption, salvation comes by substitution. With the Passover, the original one, God allowed the blood of, of a lamb to substitute for the Israelite families. And there's a parallel now as we come to the one we worship, Jesus. God saves by substitution. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice as their substitute, taking the death penalty we deserve for our sins. This is why when John the Baptist in John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming at a distance, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's not a coincidence that in that time when Jesus was crucified, that that was the time in celebration of the Passover. That's not a coincidence at all. And just in case we somehow manage to miss all these connections, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul specifically says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So this original Passover, way back then in Egypt, was a precursor, a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus and substitution so that we could go free from captivity of sin and death rather than be continuing being enslaved to sin. And so we see the Passover here. And in that tenth and final plague, it finally convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. This was called the Exodus from Egypt. He let them go, and then he changed his mind. 
So he sent the Egyptian army after the Israelites. Then you have this big showdown at the Red Sea where the Israelites are in, in really a, between an army and a hard, not, not a kind of rock and hard place, but they're between an army and a, and a sea. No place for them to go. They're helpless. But God performs a miracle in delivering them. He parts the sea. They cross through, escape from the Egyptian army. And they were helpless. But this shows God's grace, God's mercy in delivering them. And then they come to Mount Sinai. And there's a covenant, a binding relationship established there between God and the people of Israel. Mount Sinai was where God met with Moses in the burning bush. And after the Exodus, Mount Sinai was where God met the Israelites to call them to be his special people and representatives to this world. And so that's where we're going to pick up now some background for Exodus chapter 19. I invite you to follow along as I read beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered into the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So we see here that Israel, it's God's chosen people. And if you want to understand what's taking place in the rest of the Old Testament and really what's, what's taking place in much of the New Testament, it's important to understand what this is all about of Israel being God's chosen people. One of the things that we see here in verse 4 is that God's deliverance defined their sense of identity. God said, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This is a metaphorical reference to the Exodus when God took them out of slavery and brought them to Sinai to make, him, make them his personal, holy, special people. And over and over, as you read through the Old Testament, you will see that the Israelites over and over and over are looking back to this event of the Exodus when God delivered them. The Exodus was the defining event of God's saving work on, the, on behalf of the Israelites that they kept looking back to over and over and over. It's very much how we as Christians have a defining event that we look back to. We don't necessarily look back to crossing the Red Sea. Instead, we look back to what Jesus did through his death and resurrection. We look at that event, event that's the defining event, the, the defining event of God's saving work on our behalf. And the Exodus was what they looked back to as well for theirs. The Exodus is just a, a little picture, a foreshadowing again of the ultimate deliverance that God accomplished through Jesus. But, but for us, the cross and Jesus' work there defines our identity in the same way that for the Israelites, God's, God's deliverance from Egypt defined their sense of national identity. Now we see moving on here that Israel is God's treasured possession. Verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Now, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for treasured possession is this idea of how a king and his family, they may own, technically speaking, the entire country over which they are rulers, but they have their treasured possessions that are they're special things, items of some sort, treasures that to them have particular importance and value to them. Even though they own it all, these certain things are the most valuable to them. It's kind of like in our houses. I mean, we may have a lot of different stuff that we own. Mods are good. We each have certain things that have particular meaning and significance to us. Maybe it's a family heirloom that's been passed down. Maybe it's a special toy or a special book. Maybe it's a piece of artwork. Maybe it's uh, a photo album that out of everything that we have, we would say, you know what, these are the things that are most important to me. If there's a fire and we could, you play one of those games of, okay, you can take three things out of your house, what would you take to save from a fire? These would be the things that you would take because they're the most special possessions that you have. And this is what God is saying Israel represents to him, that they are his special treasured possession. They are the ones that, in a sense, he, he values, and he's uh, placing special priority on. They didn't do anything to earn this, this special status before God. I mean, he just gave it to them by his grace. Now, a lot of people hear this, that God would choose one nation to be his treasured possession, and they think, that is not fair at all. God, you, should, you can't just choose one nation to be the ones that you lavish your favor on. You need, to, you need to be fair. You need to choose everyone, especially in our culture where we, we want to give a trophy to everyone for participation. This doesn't seem right at all, does it? But we have to understand God's purposes here. He has chosen Israel as the conduit of his blessing to the whole world. They are not to keep God's blessing just for themselves. You remember... Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God said that, that to Abraham, I will make your descendants to be a blessing to the nations. All nations will be blessed through you. So the attitude of the Israelites is not to be, hey, hey, sorry for you guys out there. God was the one who chose us. We're going to have a party with, with him in here. And, and Too bad for you. You're stuck out there. Now, at times, the Israelites did develop this mentality, but that is not God's intent at all. God's intent, again, is that they will be a conduit of his blessing into the world. And we see this in the description that comes next. It says that although the whole earth is mine, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. A priest is someone who stands before God or between God and people, representing God to help the people grow closer to God and to administer God's justice and God's blessing and God's grace and God's truth to the people to, again, to help them to grow closer to God. And Israel is called a kingdom of priests. That their identity, their role, their responsibility is to represent God to the world around them. So as a kingdom of priests, God is calling them to be an example, basically his show-and-tell exhibit to the world of what it looks like to live in a right relationship with him. As a kingdom of priests, Israel is to proclaim God's truth and to invite the rest of the world to worship this one true God. As a kingdom of priests, Israel is called to intercede for the world in prayer and through sacrifices in order to help lead people to that one true God. And as a kingdom of priests, Israel is called to faithfully submit themselves to God's rule. 
so that his blessing can flow through them to the world. This this is a high calling. You see, God did not call them to himself just for for their own benefit. He called them to be a special chosen people so that his blessings could flow through them to the world. In order for them to fulfill this calling as as a kingdom of priests, they need to also be a holy nation. That's what it says. You'll be a king or a priest. You'll be a holy nation. To be holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. Over in Leviticus chapter 12, 11, verse 44, God says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. They are to follow God. They are not to follow whatever is right in their own eyes. They are not to follow whatever the nations around them are doing. They are to follow God, to set themselves apart for him, to reflect his purity and his righteousness for the world around them, to see so that they will be drawn to God as well. Now, this is a high calling. I mean, to be God's treasured possession to be his representatives, his kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. It's an incredibly high privilege and a high responsibility. In order to equip them to live this out, they need to, they need to be taught. How do you do this? How does God want us to live? God, how do we live holy lives? What does this mean? Now, I want to show you a picture, literally, of me with my kids to illustrate what God was going to do next in the book of Exodus. You see, I'm sitting on a couch there with my kids, Micaiah on one side, Tehillah on the other side. We're reading a book. You can see, you know what, they're all, we're all having a good time there. Now, there is a reason that I'm sitting between them. And by your laugh, you can probably figure out what my reason is. Now, there is the reality that by sitting between them and holding a book there, they can both see it equally well. So, so that's nice for them. But there's also the reality that if an adult is not between them, It's not going to be very long before they start bickering and arguing and pushing and fighting. And so it's helpful. It's not always foolproof, but it's helpful to have an adult between them. But in those times when things kind of begin to break down a little bit and there's some anger expressed between them and you can imagine stuff that can take place then, then there's this interesting phrase or type of phrase that Shelley and I frequently use when talking with our children about that. And it goes something like this. In our family, we are kind. In our family, we treat each other with respect. In our family, we are gentle. In our family, we protect each other. We care for one another. And it's all these phrases that begin with in our family. And what we're trying to do is help them understand this is how we live in our family. We are setting the expectations. We're setting the guidelines, helping to train them. You know what? This is how we have to live in our family. It's just basic things, but people need to be trained at times in these basic things of kindness, respect, gentleness, stuff like that. But in our family, this is what we do. It's training. And that is why God then gives Israel the law. God's law was designed to help train Israel in how to live out the calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They needed to be trained in how to live in this way. So if you turn over to Exodus chapter 20, you see where God begins to lay out what his law is to help guide them in how they ought to live. Now there are a lot of misconceptions out there about the role of God's law. 
And one of the big ones that we need to make sure that we don't fall into is this idea that the law is about earning salvation by works. That is an incorrect interpretation because the law, God's intent was never that the law would be about earning his favor, to earn enough good works and enough merit in his eyes to gain salvation. That was not the intent. The correct interpretation of the role of the law and the correct interpretation of salvation is that salvation has always been by grace through faith. It's always been. It's not like the Old Testament was about salvation by works. Well, that didn't work, so let's try salvation by grace this time. That's not how it worked. Do you remember last week we talked about Genesis 15, 6, such a cornerstone verse in the whole biblical storyline when, when it says that Abraham believed God, believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was faith that God saw and said, okay, I will credit you with righteousness. Salvation by grace through faith. It started well before God gave the law. So, so to clarify, just so we are very clear on this, that, that, that the law came after faith was already instituted as the means for becoming right with God. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Now, if you read the New Testament... There are certain times where there are things said about the law that are less than positive, especially by the Apostle Paul. But if you read carefully, you will see it's not actually the law itself is being spoken of in a negative way. What is actually being spoken about is how the Jews have twisted the law to try to make it about salvation by works. That if you live up to these certain things, then you'll earn God's favor. That is the big thing that's being spoken against in the New Testament when it comes to the law. Because the law itself was not bad in terms of the purpose that God instituted it for. The reason that God instituted it was to show how to live in response to God's grace. That is the ultimate purpose of the law. Now, if you come to the New Testament, especially in Galatians 3, there are other purposes as well in terms of just highlighting our sin and our need for a Savior. But one of the main purposes here is God was trying to show how we live in response to God's grace. Did you hear that? It's about a response to God's grace. God's grace comes first. And you even see this in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 contains the most famous part of the law, the Ten Commandments. But listen to how the Ten Commandments start. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then comes the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But you see, the Israelites were already God's people by grace. He'd already delivered them. He'd already redeemed them. And that's why he starts out, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He'd already redeemed them before he issued the law. And so the law shows them how to live in response to God's grace. It's not a means of trying to work really hard to try to earn your salvation, hope you're going to be good enough. No, salvation comes by grace through faith. And the law was designed to help the Israelites learn how to, how to represent God faithfully. Now, when we come to the law, the law... Um, I mean, especially starts here in Exodus 20, continues through the book of Deuteronomy. There are supposedly, um, historically, people have calculated 613 commandments in the law. 613. And as you're reading through it, if you try to read through it, you'll find, okay, there are times where it's, it's hard to get through. 
It's a bit laborious at times, especially when you get to the book of Leviticus where people oftentimes get bogged down. And you may think, this is not really a whole lot better than the IRS tax code. I will say, Old Testament law is a whole lot shorter and a lot less dense than the IRS tax code. But still, we try to figure out, okay, what's all this saying here? What's the purpose besides just this idea that it's trying to teach us something? Well, I think Jesus offers a great summary of what the law is all about. Because in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked by a religious leader, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of them all? What he's doing is trying to trip up Jesus a little bit. Uh, But Jesus has, as always, a great response. He says the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying loving God, loving others, that is the basis of everything in God's law. And you even see those two priorities in the Ten Commandments because if you were to read through them, you'll see the first four commandments specifically focus on loving God. And then commandments 5 through 10 focus more on loving others. I mean, it's still a response to God, but it's focused more on loving others. And so we see that, that the law is put in a place to help the Israelites honor and represent God faithfully to the world. God is faithful. Let's take a step back a little bit and look at this bigger picture. God is faithful. He gave promises to Abraham that he will make Abraham's descendants into a great nation that will bless the rest of the world. Here we see in Exodus 19 and 20 and and with bringing them out of Egypt that God is is well on his way to fulfilling the promises that he made. He, He is always faithful to his promises. But for Israel, it was, a, it was a great privilege to be God's people, but also it came with a great responsibility. And it's really the same for us as Christians. That, that we have a tremendous privilege of being God's sons and his daughters, of being reconciled with him through Christ. But we also have a tremendous responsibility of being Christ's ambassadors to the world around us. And I want to now turn us over to a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you're following in your Bibles, I encourage you to turn over there. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a passage in which Peter is just talking about the gospel, about how Jesus is a cornerstone for our faith, how we need to have faith in Jesus, and that is how we become part of God's people, is through faith in Jesus. And as we read this passage out of 1 Peter 2, I want you to remember God's description of Israel in Exodus 19, that they are a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now let's look at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter's talking to Christians here. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to look at this passage just for our last few minutes together and talk about finding our place in God's story. I mean, it's so cool just to see how God, uh, inspiring Peter, is, is taking the promises given to his people Israel back in Exodus 19 and now applying them to his people, Christians, the church, here in the New Testament. Now, one of the things we have to understand here is that we, just like Israel, represent God. 
to the world around us. We are a royal priesthood. And Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2 are the foundation for this theological belief of the priesthood of all believers. It means everyone is to represent God. All Christians are to represent God to the surrounding world. It's not just something for, for the professionals to do. I mean, some people think, well, it's the clergy. It's, it's pastors like me and Pastor David who, who are paid to do this. And, and they're the ones who've been trained in seminary or Bible college to do that. And so then they're the ones who should be doing the ministry, and we're here more to receive it, to be supporting them in the process. No, that's not quite how it works biblically. The priesthood of all believers says that we all have that responsibility. You see, church is not to be like how we typically engage in a football game. I mean, when you go to a football game, you might pay a little bit of money, and then you sit there and watch others do the hard work of playing the game. That is not how God designed church and Christianity to operate. Instead, we are all to be participants in what God is doing. He wants to work through us in the lives of others. And so we are called to represent him in our neighborhoods, in our school, in our workplace, um, and among our friendship groups, all over the place. We are God's representatives. And so the question is, how are you, how am I representing God to the world around us? Are we being faithful to bless those, uh, those around us in Christ's name? Are we being faithful to point people around us to Christ? Because that is the calling that he has placed on our lives as his followers. That's a big part of finding our place in his story is, is figuring out how, how do we represent him faithfully. A second important thing out of this passage is this idea of holiness. We are a holy nation. We're called to be holy, to be set apart for God. Now, now what this is not talking about is a geographical nation. He's not talking about America or any other particular geographical nation right now. It's using this imagery from the Old Testament to say that we are called to be a holy people set apart for him. We're not to be conformed to the ways of this world. In fact, back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, it specifically quoted Leviticus 11. Where, where God says, be holy because I am holy. We as his followers are called to be holy. Not, again, not to conform to the way of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through Scripture. You know, the law served as a touchstone, as a way to train the Israelites in how they ought to live. It was to shape them for holy living. In the same way for us as Christians, the Bible, God's Word, is to be what is shaping our lives to live holy lives that represent him faithfully. And so the question for us is how deeply are we being shaped by Scripture? How deeply are we being shaped by Scripture? Are we shaped by this or are we shaped more by conforming to the opinions of people around us, the values of the world? I want to just point out a few topics to consider. And some of these are kind of hot-button topics in today's society. There are things that you hear, okay, you shouldn't talk about religion and politics and stuff like that. But at the same time, I think it's valuable in some of these topics to ask, what are we being shaped most by? Are we being shaped by the opinions of others that we see, say, on Facebook? Are we being shaped by our own history? Are we being shaped just by what's right in our own eyes? Or are we being shaped by what God says in his word? Because if we want to be God's holy people set apart for him, this has to be what shapes us in our perspectives. So let me just throw out there a few issues that are a bit touchy in our world, but just ask, how are we being shaped in these things? How about the topic of immigration in America? You know, like a hot-button topic just even within the last 24 hours? 
Now, it is a tricky subject in many different aspects. It has to do with national security, stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm just going, I want to ask, what is shaping our perspective on this? How is God and his word shaping our perspectives on how we are supporting or not supporting whatever America is doing with immigrants? It's a question that is complex, but at the same time, it's something that we need to come back to the litmus test of Scripture and ask, okay, what does Scripture call us to? I mean, we do have to see immigrants, refugees, played a significant role in God's story. Israel itself were refugees down in Egypt. I mean, we, a little bit later in this passage in First Peter 2, are called aliens and strangers in the world. God's heart for people who are oppressed should shape how we view these things. I'm not saying they're easy answers, but we still need to come back and not ask, okay, what seems right to me or what, what's popular out there on Facebook? Instead, we need to come back to what does God's word say? How about sexuality and marriage? The direction of the culture is a very different direction than what God says in his word. So what's shaping us? If we want to be God's holy people, faithful to him, we need to come back to what this says. How about the issues of race? In our society, these have been highlighted over the last couple of years. A lot of tensions there, and especially in more recent year or so, in terms of how racial issues have to do with um, law enforcement. And what you end up getting is this polarization of, well, you're either pro police or you're you're pro racial justice and stuff like that. And and this is where our world oftentimes is. I'll say I'm not a big fan of Facebook. I think Facebook can have a lot of good aspects of it. I really wish we could go back to a pre-Facebook world because I think that what ends up happening is Facebook becomes this quagmire of pettiness and narcissism and it creates this polarization where you, you just need to stand on one side or the other and, and where is the room for, for discerning, okay, in this issue over here, we have these different things to consider and over here we have these different things to consider and you know what? The Bible has a lot to say about racial issues. The Bible has a lot to say about justice. And it's not black and white in terms of when we look at our society and say, well, either these people are wrong or these people are wrong. And you know what? We need to go back to God's word and ask, how does God's word shape our perspectives on these things? I mean, politics in general. I'm worried as I look at our nation that we are not discerning enough, especially in light of letting God's word to be our filter where we can easily end up supporting one political party or one candidate or one politician to the degree of, it's that polarization again, where because we've pledged support through a vote or through a statement on Facebook or something, that then we have to support every single thing that they ever do or say. No, our ultimate allegiance is not to a party or a candidate or, or a politician. Our ultimate allegiance actually isn't even directly to the United States of America. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. That's what it means to be a part of his holy people. And so we need to come back and we should feel the freedom, come back to the word and feel the freedom to to analyze stuff that's taking place through the lens of scripture and feel that freedom to say, you know what? I agree with what this person or this party or this group is doing in this respect. But in this respect over here, when I look at God's word, I don't think it lines up. That's what it means to be God's holy people. Not that we've become overly politicized. I mean, we've definitely done a good job of that. Um, and it's, I think, hurt our witness as Americans. But what we need to do is be that holy nation that's coming back to God's word, letting God's word shape us.
because that's how we most faithfully represent him to the world around us. Being holy, being his representatives, mean that we start with God and let him work through us. Now, I want to call us back now to Jesus because he's the centerpiece of the whole story. And I want to read a little bit from the Jesus Storybook Bible in closing. Um, this is taking place just after uh, the Israelites have arrived at Mount Sinai. And it says that God called Moses up the mountain. The great mountain shook. A thick cloud fell. Thunder roared. Lightning crackled. And God gave Moses ten rules called commandments. I want you to love me more than anything else in all the world. And know that I love you too, God told them. That's the most important thing of all. God gave them other rules. Like don't make for yourselves pretend gods. Don't kill people. Don't steal. Don't lie. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to be close to him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be, a, be perfect for them. Because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. So as God's representatives to the world around us, he set us apart for his purposes. What a privilege that is. But what a responsibility that is. And everything we do, may we be pointing people to Jesus. For he is the one in whom we have hope. He is the one who can save us and deliver us. So may we be faithful in representing him and pointing people to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Just as you lavished grace upon the Israelites, you've lavished grace upon us. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. And thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you. Thank you that you are faithful down through the centuries, Lord. That even when your people have been faithless, you remain faithful. Lord, I pray that we will grow in our faithfulness to you, letting your grace shine and radiate through us to those around us. Lord, may we live lives that are holy, that are set apart, that we will be less and less conformed to the ways of this world, more and more transformed as our minds are renewed through your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.